welcome to my favorite theorem, the math podcast with no quiz at the end. Or perhaps today we should say the maths podcast uh, with mm, no quiz at the end. Indeed. My name is Evelyn Lamb. I'm a freelance math and science writer in Salt Lake City, Utah, and this is your other host. Hi, I'm Kevin Knudsen, professor of mathematics at the University of Florida. It's Juneteenth. So, it is. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah. And I'm all alone this week. Um, my wife's wife's out of town and yesterday was Father's Day and I, I, I installed um, uh, cabinets in the laundry room. This is how I spent my Father's Day. Something we've been talking about doing uh, since we bought the house. Thing well, to do. We, we, we bought the, 14 years later, I finally installed some cabinets in the laundry room. So anyway, it looks yeah. like looks like you had a good time in France, judging from your Instagram feed. Yes. Yeah. And I, I'm freshly back. So I'm in that phase of jet lag where like you get up really early. And so it's 9am and I already went for a bike ride and did some baking and had like a relaxing breakfast. And I, at this point, I'm always like, why don't I do this all the time? But eventually my natural circadian night owl yeah. rhythms will catch up with me. Yeah. I'm enjoying enjoying my brief, brief um, morning person. Yeah. Uh, phase never been one won't ever be one as far as i can tell yeah. so anyway i uh, just keep moving west and then you'll be a person <laughs> sure, for sure, as long sure, as sure. you can keep jet lag going that's right that's um, right yeah so yeah today we are very happy to have sarah hart on the show sarah would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you know what what you're all about hi <laughs> uh, yes yeah, so my name is sarah hart i'm a mathematician based in in London in the United Kingdom. Uh, I'm a professor of mathematics, but my true passion is finding the links and seeing them between mathematics and other subjects, whether that's music or art or literature. And so I think there's fascinating observations to be made there. You know, the, the symmetries and patterns that we love as mathematicians are in all other creative subjects. Mm-hmm. And and it's fun to spot them and and spot the mathematics that's hiding in all of our favorite things. Yeah, yeah and fun. of course, just a couple of months ago, you published a book about this. So, will you tell us about it? Yeah, yeah. So, this book it's called Once Upon a Prime, and mm-hmm. it's the wondrous connections between mathematics and literature. And in the book, I explore everything from the hidden structures that are underneath various forms of poetry to the ways that authors have used mathematical ideas in their writing to structure novels and other pieces of fiction, and the ways that authors have used mathematical imagery and metaphor to enrich their writing. Authors as diverse as, you know, George Eliot, Leo Tolstoy, Marcel Proust, Kurt Vonnegut, you name it. And then I also look in in the third section of the book at how mathematics itself and mathematicians are portrayed in fiction because I think that's very very interesting it shows us the ways in which those things at the time the books are written how is the mathematics perceived how has it made its way into popular culture and how mathematicians are perceived as well that tells us something fascinating I think about the the place of mathematics in our culture yeah Yeah, definitely yeah we're always portrayed as um either mentally ill or Um, or just like, well, yeah. or, or absurd geniuses, you know, when really, yeah. we're, you know, we're, we're all pretty normal. Well, not, most of us are all pretty normal people, right? I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, well, we, we are, we are as everybody. There's a range, mm-hmm. there's That's a range right. of ways to be human and there's a range of ways to be a mathematician. But yeah, we're not all 
tragic geniuses or kind of amoral beings of pure logic or <laughs> any yeah. of those things that you find in you find in books. So yeah, and, and there are some sympathetic portrayals of mathematicians out there, and I know I talk about some of those, but yeah, it's it's very interesting how these these tropes, these stereotypes, can can creep in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I must confess I I'm about three quarters of the way through haven't quite finished that last section but the first few sections that i've read i've definitely i keep adding books to my oh uh, yeah want to read list so uh it's yeah a little dangerous. should come should have a little warning the book saying you you will need a bigger bookcase unfortunately you know you will want to go and read all of these books and yeah i i i'm sorry not sorry i think is the phrase i uh downloaded so i don't need a bigger bookshelf because i put uh-huh. this one on my e-reader mm. but um Good i plan. downloaded the luminaries which sounds like a really interesting oh, yeah. book and excited to get to that oh, yeah. you know in yeah. the the never-ending <clears throat> list of of books that i'd like to read that right. Was, yeah. Um, right yeah we were talking about there. talking about our sundoku business uh before mm-hmm. we, we um so i actually i i did with a friend in the lit department or in the language department, we, we taught a course on math and literature a few years ago. And it it was, it was so much fun. It was the best teaching experience I ever had. Uh, And, and, uh, but I was glad to read your book because we missed so much. Right. I mean, of course we only had 15 weeks, you know, we, and we, (laughs) we, 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 uh, we talked about Wolf, like to the lighthouse is kind of an interesting one. And, uh, but yeah, I, I, I did finish the book. So sorry, Evelyn, I went, uh, but um, <laughs> no, it's 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 actually uh, you know it is spectacularly well written and uh, oh, and, and, and I'm and I'm I'm glad you're having success with it because it's it and and again I I like that, that this idea that you're sort of humanizing mathematicians and mathematics and showing people how it's everywhere isn't that part of your job isn't aren't you the the Gresham professor is that correct. Yeah. Yes. I'm. Yeah, yeah. I'm the Gresham professor of right. geometry. So this okay. is a Gresham College. Is this really unique institution? Actually, it was founded in 1597 mm-hmm. in the will of Sir Thomas Gresham, who is mm-hmm. a, a financier at the court of Queen Elizabeth I in Tudor times. Okay. And in his will, he left provision for this college to be founded that would have seven professors, and their whole job was to give free lectures at the time to the people of London. Mm. Of course, now it's all live streamed and it goes out available all over the, the sure. internet. But, um, and anyone could go and it was just, you know, if you want to learn these subjects and he thought, you know, there are seven the most important subjects at the time that he said, I would still say geometry and mathematics more broadly very important, but it was geometry, music, astronomy, law, uh, rhetoric, physic, which is like the old word for medicine. Mm-hmm. And I, I perhaps have forgotten one, but but yeah, these subjects. And so still today, this is what Gresham College does. Free public lectures to anyone who wants to come. Now, you used to have to give them once in Latin and once in English. <laughs> <laughs> now, now you do not have to do it. Thank goodness. So, yeah. so uh, yeah. Well, who would come? <laughs> I don't know. I think, if, yeah, if I had to suddenly give my lectures in Latin, that might be slightly more of a challenge. But so this is my, my role there is to communicate mathematical ideas mm-hmm. to anyone who wants to listen so a general audience and some of them will have mathematical training but many will not and they they're just kind of interested people mm-hmm. uh, who have just find things in general interesting and mathematics is part of that i i love that idea that mathematics is it's part of what you know a, a 
culturally interesting person might want to know about. Mm -hmm. And that is something that perhaps used to be more so than it is today. And I, you know, I really would like mathematics to somehow be rehabilitated (laughs) into, you know, what, what, what the cultural conversation involves rather than it seems to be perhaps in a little bit, sometimes it's pigeonholed or put to one side. You have to be like a geek to like mathematics. You have to be a, a, a unusual and it's really not true. It's not the case. Yeah. Right. Right. Wow, that, that sounds like a dream job, writing that down. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Putting I mean, that on my, my dream yeah. board. Although For I'm, me, it's, I, yeah. No, I, I, was Carry on, say, sorry. I, I seem to remember, uh, so I read the review of your book, uh, I think Jordan Ellenberg, who's also been on. Yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, mentioned that the first person who held your chair invented long division. Is that actually yes. true? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's no, what it's you, true. That, that's what used to get you a university job, is you, you invent long, yeah. long division. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's, you know, what, what a lineage to be part of. I, right. I really feel honored and humbled to be, mm. to be in that role. And actually, so I'm the first woman to do this job mm. in its 400 and whatever year history, which... You know, okay, you could say we might be a bit late with that one, but it's yeah, I, I feel it's a real privilege mm-hmm. to do it. Right. Yeah, well, that's wonderful. So we have invited you on this show to tell us what your favorite theorem is. So have at it. Yeah. Okay, so my favorite theorem, I guess it's could be called a collection of, of theorems, really, but fine. The proper the properties of the cycloid. So the cycloid mm. is it's it's my favorite curve and it's my favorite curve that probably unless you're a mathematician you may not have heard of it Mm -hmm. so people have heard of ellipses and circles and parabolas and they've heard of shapes like triangles and things right but cycloids people tend not to have heard of and and for me that's that's a surprise because they're Mm -hmm. so lovely and the history of the study of the cycloid, which you know we can we could talk about, mm-hmm. is so fascinating and fun, and so many of the most famous mathematicians that people have heard of, like Isaac Newton and Leibniz and right. Mersenne and Descartes and Galileo and Pascal and Fermat, all of those people worked on the cycloid and were fascinated by it, and and that, so there are these beautiful properties that it has, which we can bundle up into a theorem. <laughs> that okay. will be my yeah. favorite theorem. That, okay. That's great. And so. yeah, in case anyone listening to this doesn't know about the cycloid, it's it's a cool curve. And yeah. it's actually, you know, it's a curve that a lot of people haven't seen as such, but it's one that does kind of arise sort of in, in everyday life, uh, yeah. mm-hmm. kind of. So yeah, do you want to describe you yeah, know, what, so what a cycloid is? The, the You can make a cycloid... Um, quite easily it's sort of it's a fairly natural idea i would say imagine a wheel rolling along a road mm-hmm. and now somewhere on the the rim of the wheel you paint you put a little blob of paint or something like that or or if it's in the dark you can put a little light and then and then as the wheel rolls along that blob of paint or little light will be following a particular path mm-hmm. as the yeah, wheel rolls it will be kind of up and down and eventually you know sometimes it'll touch kind of where the ground is and then it'll go up and it down again and what you get is a series of arches look like arches mm-hmm. and that's what the cycloid is normally you take like one arch and call that the cycloid right so this it's quite a natural idea what you know what kind of shape will that be and what what is this arch shape and the first thing you can say is 
yeah, is it something I already know about? So early on in the, the, the study of this curve, it, which is first written down as a question, what is this shape, about 1500. Um, Mara Mersenne, who is famous for Mersenne primes, among other things, so he thought maybe it's half an ellipse, sort of a, a, mm. this arch, mm-hmm. kind of half an ellipse. He wondered, and that's not too bad an approximation, but it isn't quite that. And so that's sort of question one, is it something we already know? And it wasn't. So then people like Galileo started to ask, well, what do we we like to know about shapes and curves? Mm -hmm. So there are two questions, really. At the time, um, they were called the quadrature question Mm. and the rectification. So quadrature is what's the the area? So if you make this arch, kind of what's the area underneath this arch, between the arch and the road, I guess. That's question one. And the other one is, the rectification, what's the length? Mm-hmm. So how long is this arch, you know, in terms of the circle that, makes, that right. makes the arch, the cycloid? And Galileo didn't know how to calculate either of those things, but he actually made, he made, physically made a cycloid. So he kind of got mm-hmm. a piece of sheet metal and he rolled a circle <laughs> along it and he got the path and mm-hmm. then he cut it out mm-hmm. and he weighed... He weighed the mm. bit of metal that he had oh, wow. <laughs> to, okay. to find an estimate for the area. Okay, so this is a real hands-on thing because yeah, he did not know. Yeah. yeah, like I saw he physically made it and weighed it. And he got an answer that was around about three times the area of the, of the circle that makes it, roughly mm-hmm. speaking. And he said, okay, I wonder, now if we all think, what's a number that's roughly three that's to do with circles? Right. And so he wondered, could it be pi times the area of the circle? Mm. It isn't. It isn't pi times the area of the circle. Mm-hmm. It's, so it, Galileo never uh, managed to work out exactly what it was. But this guy, Roberval, Gilles de Roberval, did manage to work out what the area is. He didn't tell anyone how he'd done it, because <laughs> <laughs> at this time in history, uh, it was, there were all these priority disputes. Who's thought mm-hmm. of this thing first? Who's mm-hmm. done what first? People would sometimes go to the length of uh, writing their solutions in code. So Thomas Hook, who was another Gresham professor, he, when he worked out what we call Hook's Law now, mm-hmm. he wrote um, Hook's Law down as an anagram in Latin, uh, but didn't <laughs> before, he, before he kind of told anyone else. And then if anyone else came up with it, you could say, look, here's my anagram that I did earlier to prove that I thought of it. But, so there were all these... Weird and wonderful things that people did at that time to establish priority. But Robert Val, he had this incentive for not telling that he knew the area under a cycloid. And the incentive was this. It was not a good idea <laughs> for them to do this. The job he had at the time, Robert Val, was renewed every three years. Mm. And um, to get the job every three years, there was a, 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 some questions that were set and if you could answer those questions the best you know, out of all the people trying mm-hmm. to do it, you could get that job for the next three years. Mm. But the person setting the question was the incumbent professor. So if you're the incumbent professor, you need to set questions that only you know the answer to. Right. And then you yeah. get to keep the job. So for a few years, Robert Val could say, you know, what's the area under this cycloid? And that mm-hmm. would, no one else knew. So he worked it out. And his proof is quite nice, but it wasn't published until 30 or 40 years after his death. Um, but it actually, and this is the first lovely thing about the cycloid, the area, if you have a circle that's making this cycloid by rolling along a road, the area underneath one of these arches is exactly, not pi times, exactly three times mm-hmm. the area of the generating circle. So a lovely whole number, simple relationship 
between yeah, those two areas. What are the areas. odds? I mean, yeah. I know. Yeah. It's, it's like just almost miraculous. It was yeah. fantastic. So here's another equally miraculous thing that kind of adds to the first one. Then, then people tried to work out what's the, what's the length of this cycloid mm-hmm. arch. Okay. And the person who managed to solve that was, in fact, Christopher Wren. So he's, mm. he's well known mm-hmm. as an architect. He designed St. Paul's, the wonderful dome of St. Paul's in London and many other churches in London. But he was also a mathematician and many other things. So he solved the, the rectification problem, what's the length? And if the circle that makes this, uh, this cycloid has diameter d, so we know that the circumference of that circle, the length around the circle, would be pi times d, well, another beautiful whole number relationship, the length of the cycloid arch is exactly four times the diameter. Mm. A beautiful whole number relationship. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. So you've got these two lovely properties of the cycloid. And people were fascinated by it. So it had this nickname, the Helen of geometry, as mm. in Helen, you know, the face <laughs> yeah. that launched a thousand ships. Right. It was a very beautiful curve with beautiful properties. Um, but there's another reason why it was called the Helen of geometry. And it was because like Helen of myth, uh, it, it started, <laughs> it, lots of squabbling happened. So we, I mentioned Roberval, who had, uh, had proved this, the, the, the area uh, formula for the cycloid. Someone else came along a few years later and found out this, this result. And Roberval immediately accused him of plagiarism. <laughs> and this guy um, <laughs> was like, no, well, I know I didn't, I didn't do that. Um, but they, they, they argued about it. Uh, I think it was Torricelli. And, and when Torricelli mm. died a few years later, Robert, like Team Roberval said he's died of shame because of being a plagiarist. <laughs> <laughs> um, he, 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 did, he may have died of shame, but he also happened to have typhoid at the same moment. So, you know. Sure. Yeah. Shame-induced typhoid? Sh- shame, yeah, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> but, you know, so that was one squabble. But then... Um, Fermat and Descartes had an argument because they both proved something about uh, the tangents to the cycloid. Mm. And they hated the way each other had done this. So uh, I think it was Fermat did, had a particular method. Descartes said that this method was ridiculous gibberish. So, you know, he's not mincing his words. He's not saying, I prefer my method. He's just, yeah, yeah. you're... Yeah. Fermat is speaking gibberish and nonsense. So they argued. Um, but, you know, this is a very, it's this beautiful curve has other exciting properties. And this is where it goes from for me. Okay, nice whole number relationships, cute. But then, and one of the things that we all love in mathematics is where something you've studied over here reappears in a completely different context. Mm-hmm. And this is what happens with the cycloid. So it comes up to, in a connection with trying to make a better clock. Mm. So there's this mathematician. Christian Huygens, mm-hmm. who is trying to make a better clock, and he comes up with a pendulum clock. And so pendulum clocks improve timekeeping dramatically. Before mm. the pendulum clock came along, basically it was a sundial or, mm-hmm. <laughs> or nothing really. Mm-hmm. You know, there were no very there were no good mechanical clocks. And if the, the ones that existed would lose about 15 minutes a day or something of time. Right. The pendulum clock comes along. And so you can do kind of the mathematics of, of a swinging pendulum. And if you make a little approximation, so your approximation that you make is that um, for a small angle theta, 
um, the sine of theta is approximately theta. Mm -hmm. So you can make that approximation and it, it's pretty good for small, for small angles. And if you do that, then when you work out kind of what the forces are acting on the pendulum, you find that, roughly speaking, it, it will have the same, it will take the same time to do its swing wherever you release it from. So it has mm -hmm. this kind of constant period, basically. And that's why pendulum clocks are useful for telling the time. But they're not perfect because we had to use an approximation right. to get to that point. So Christian Huygens is wondering, is there actually a curve that I can make that will really genuinely have this constant period property mm -hmm. that wherever I release a, a particle from on this curve, it will reach the bottom in the same time? Right. Because that's what the pendulum almost does, but doesn't quite do. And so he said, and this problem is known as the tautochrone problem because it, it's, it's, the, it's kind of the same time in, in Greek. And it turns out, guess what? Mm -hmm. The cycloid <laughs> solves the tautochrone problem. It's precisely, so we have an arch. So if you've got to turn the arch upside down, so now you're kind of roll, you can roll, right. your particle can roll down. And wherever you release a particle from on the cycloid, it will reach the bottom in exactly the same time. It's I mean, remarkable. assuming, you know, yeah. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's got a smooth, no friction, whatever. It's just rolling down under gravity. And that, I mean, it's not even clear that such a curve could exist. Mm -hmm. Right. It's quite yeah. a thing to ask. And yet the cycloid has this property and it's, it's fantastic. Um, so that's an amazing thing. And a few years later, uh, so Huygens worked this out. A few years later, um, a different problem was posed. It's kind of a related question or, or something to do with particles anyway. And the question here is called the brachistochrome problem. And mm -hmm. it was posed by uh, Johann Bernoulli, one of the Bernoulli brothers. Uh, and he posed this kind of publicly in a journal saying, OK, if you now have two points, A and B, A is above B, and you want to have a curve such that when a particle kind of rolls down that curve from A to B, it will reach point b in the quickest time mm -hmm. so what would might that be is it sort of a parabola maybe or what's it a straight line what's it going to be like and this problem was posed to the mathematicians of europe as, as a challenge and quite a few big names entered this competition mm -hmm. um to, to see if they could do this so uh leibniz was one gottfried leibniz Bernoulli himself solved it uh his older brother solved it and then they got this anonymous entry and it was beauti so beautifully done and elegantly produced the solution to this um, that even though it was anonymous, when Bernoulli saw it, he said this famous phrase, I recognize the lion by his claw. Mm -hmm. right? And it was mm -hmm. Isaac Newton who had solved this problem. And guess what? It's the cycloid again. Mm -hmm. The cycloid solves this problem as well. So you've got this amazing curve, which is a natural idea. It's got these lovely whole number relationships about its length and its area. And then it suddenly also can solve these totally different questions about particles rolling down in, in the quickest time or constant time. Right. And so that is why I love the cycloid so much. Like everybody's worked on it. It's got this amazing history. It's really beautiful. This sounds like a good public lecture. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, yeah, I just get really... <laughs> I yeah, the cornucopia. Yeah, yeah. So here's yeah. a question: the the original area calculation that Robert Val did. Um, yeah. Did he use calculus, or was this a geometric argument? So he used something that kind of isn't quite calculus yet. Mm -hmm. Okay. But uh, Cav Cavalieri's principle, okay. which is to yeah. say, you know, when you, if you if you're comparing areas, 
if you kind of if you have got two shapes where the if you slice through mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the length of those slices is the same at every point, mm-hmm. then the areas are the same. Okay. So he used okay. that principle, which you can extend to volumes as well. Right. And he kind of he did a particular. So he, he managed to do this, and he he had the the curve that you make for the cycloid. He made it up from three different pieces, and he did this sort of slicing argument. Okay. To to compare to with, with things he already knew, one of which was a sine curve. Although I don't think he necess- I don't think he noticed it was a sine curve at the time, but we, we can now see that. So sure. now you would make that argument with calculus, mm-hmm. but it's the same basic idea mm-hmm. that you're you're slicing something very finely. Right. Yeah. Right. You you could almost imagine Archimedes figuring this yeah. out. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So I mean, you've made a very compelling case. So this is a a very cool curve that has all these properties is you know so like why is this your favorite or you know i know it's hard to pick a a true favorite but yeah could you talk a little bit about like how you encountered it and and what makes it so appealing to you so well there's there's at least two things there might be three one is i love the the simplicity of the results about the the area and the length that they are Mm -hmm. Just lovely, simple relationships there, comparing to the circle that makes this this curve, which itself is easy to think about what it is. So it's not kind of it's not contrived at all. It arises fairly naturally from just thinking about wheels rolling along roads. Mm-hmm. You get this curve, and then these relationships are very simple. The second reason I love it so much is because of this unexpected appearance of the cycloid in this totally different context from from how. You, you imagine mm-hmm. it, you know when mm-hmm. it's when it's it's generated by just you know a, a wheel but then a curve that has these other properties that's very surprising and there are other things we could talk about to do with involutes and all other kinds of things that where it crops up but but that for me it encapsulates the why it's such an exciting thing and it's like when you you know first encounter pi or something or you see the e to the i pi plus one equals zero that it's, it gives you that same kind of feeling of what that thing's from over here and this other constant's mm-hmm. from over there, you know, that they're linked together seems really surprising. Um, yeah, but the final thing, I suppose this kind of links in again with what we were saying about mathematics and literature is how the cycloid has caught people's imagination over time. Mm-hmm. And it's it, both of mathematicians, but outside. And there are several books that mention cycloids mm-hmm. so moby dick is one it's got a lovely little passage about cycloids but also uh, gulliver's travels mentions mm-hmm. cycloids um tristram shandy by Lawrence stern this amazing <laughs> crazy 18th century book talks about cycloids and th- those are just three they're really mm-hmm. classic books mm-hmm. that you know so it was in the air um at the time and perhaps we don't necessarily like a, a modern a modern person may not have heard of cycloids but certainly the you know if you're educated in the 18th 19th century you you may well have heard about cycloids and that to me is very interesting too yeah, mm-hmm. cool. yeah you you do write a little bit about this in your book the moby dick part i've gotten to that part <laughs> um and apparently you did you say that Melville apparently had some amazing math teacher in high school mm-hmm. and so you know, kind of yeah. <laughs> was able to to really capture his imagination about math and bring then bring that into literature later, which is just kind yeah. of a cool thing to think about as math teachers, you know, people who do teach math 
it's like, yeah, you're even if your your students don't end up in math or something, they might, you know, hopefully bring some of what you teach them that direction. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in this, it's you know the the value of having a great inspirational teacher. Mm-hmm. It, just look at with Melville. So he had a teacher. Uh, he went to a school called the Albany Academy, and he was good at school. Um, in some areas, mm-hmm. <laughs> mathematics was something he was particularly good at, and he actually won a prize for being the first best at ciphering. Was what it was mm-hmm. for. Mm-hmm. So cipher, kind of the old word for for calculation. Right. And but his prize was a book of poetry, which I like because nice. for me that's absolutely a natural a natural prize. Mm-hmm. But it wouldn't necessarily be thought. So, but his teacher uh, was uh, a man called Joseph Henry, and Joseph Henry was no ordinary school teacher. He was a very good scientist in his own right. He went on to become the first secretary of the Smithsonian. So, mm. you know, okay. pretty impressive. All right. Yeah. But uh, f- physicists will know the name Henry because the Henry is the scientific unit of inductance. Mm. And that's for Joseph. That is Herman Melville's maths teacher at school. Okay. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So he was like pretty good. And he was, a, a, by all accounts, an exceptionally good teacher to the extent that some of his classes were actually, that members of the public were allowed to come in and like attend to, as public lectures. <laughs> wow. So he, he, there's a record that says a request of his that he wants to have, you know, additional books for the more advanced students to, to entertain them beyond the normal curriculum. And so I, you know, I, don't, I don't know, and we can't know for sure how Herman Melville learned about cycloids, but I could very easily imagine that, you know, a, a lesson on Friday afternoon, let's just talk about this fascinating curve because it's really interesting and melville did have a love then of mathematics um which just comes out in his writing you can just see it the way he chooses metaphors and imagery they're often mathematical and you can just see it's it's not for any it's not thinking i must include some mathematics it's just the the sheer pleasure of it the delight Mm -hmm. the joy of mathematics just comes out uh, in his writing which is wonderful to see yeah Mm -hmm. Well, that's, yeah, that, that was such a cool story that I read in there. And I, I have loved to revisit this. I don't think I've actually thought about cycloids since I taught calculus, right? which it's been quite a while since I taught calculus. <laughs> it, it is a fun, uh, it's a very common, like example in calculus books. Yeah. Now, yeah. you know, you'll kind of go through and solve some of these, these things. And I think that when you do parametric curves, yeah. maybe. Yes, when yes, usually, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, lots of fun, but I, I don't think I had really, you know, appreciated it as this whole whole thing before. Right. So the other thing we like to do on this podcast is ask our guests to, to pair their their theorem or their bouquet of cycloid facts right. um, with something else in life. So what have you chosen for your pairing? Well, so I've chosen Moby Dick because... Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> because, it, I mean, he does talk about cycloids so in, in the book. It's not just because of that, but it, with the cycloids, there's this lovely passage where Ishmael, uh, who is, you know, traveling as a deckhand on a whaling ship with Captain Ahab, who perhaps is not entirely sane, and we discover that through the book. But uh, <laughs> there are many, Ishmael sort of has these wonderful meditations. He's just thinking about things, and some of them are mathematical and some of them aren't. But there's one particular point where he is cleaning the, the tripods, and a tripod to something you you had on a whaling ship where these great cauldron-like pots where they 
kind of render the whale blubber down, mm-hmm. but, and then you have to clean them. And so he says, you know, these, this is a place for wonderful mathematical meditation. And he, and he talks about as his soapstone is, is circling around the inside of the tripod, he says, I was struck by the fact that in mathematics, the cycloid is the curve where you can, you can release something and it mm-hmm. falls to the bottom in, the, um, in, the, in a constant time. And so he just sort of drops in the cycloid yeah. and just mentions it while he's daydreaming about something else. But Moby Dick, it's full of mathematical ideas. And it's, it's, you know, they are interested in numbers to the extent that Ishmael, he, he has the data or information about whales, the measurements and statistics about whales. He has them tattooed onto his body because, as he says, you know, I didn't have a pen to hand kind of thing. There was no other way to recall them. So he just has them tattooed on his body. Ahab is doing calculations on his ivory leg. You know, there's all these discussions about number. But there are lovely... Uh, pieces of imagery around kind of the infinite series of ripples um, in waves in the sea. There's a metaphor about loyalty where uh, Ahab says to the cabin boy, you are loyal as the circumference to the center. You know, he's comparing Mm. the circumference always stays the same distance from the center. And it's just lovely little pieces of mathematical imagery throughout and throughout all Melville's work. So I thought, yes, Moby Dick would be a very good pairing for yeah. this theorem. And so you actually have a paper about this in the Journal of Humanistic Math, right? The Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Ahab's like, arithmetic yeah. or something? Ahab's arithmetic, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, that itself is a little bit of a reference to uh, a discussion that happens in Moby Dick, which is where uh, two of them are talking about uh, a book called Dabble's Arithmetic, which mm. was the kind of classic uh, text in American schools, I think, at the time, uh, which had all these kind of rules about how to do calculations. And uh, you could you could do mysterious things with with this book, because, you know, if if perhaps the mathematics hadn't been taught by a teacher like Joseph Henry, perhaps you learnt, you've learnt these rules off by heart. You don't quite understand them. And so they talk in the book about cabalistic contrivances for producing these things. And at one point, someone says, I have heard devils can be raised with dabbles arithmetic. So, you know, this mm-hmm. is the other side of mathematics where people sort of hold it in awe, but also perhaps they have some suspicions around what, what do yeah. all these symbols mean? And it's mm-hmm. very interesting. If you look at that book, uh, Dabbles Arithmetic, it isn't like a mathematics book would now be. So when he talks about how to find the areas of circles, for instance, pi is not mentioned at all. Mm. He says, you know, you, you square the radius and you multiply it by. 22 over 7. Mm. Or if you want a more accurate thing, you could multiply it by uh, what's that other approximation? Right. About 335 over 113. Yeah, yeah. 113, I think. Yeah. 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 Right. So, but he doesn't say because these are approximations to pi. It's just like you can do this or you can do that. Right. Here's another. Yeah. yeah. Here's just where does that come from? So that's a very interesting thing. And, that, and that, so there are mathematics books discussed or mentioned in Moby Dick as well. And if you if you're you kind of know a little bit about them. So Euclid, of course, is mentioned a little bit. Yeah, so the book, it's full of mathematics. And I really wanted to think about in the, in the article I wrote, um, yeah, like, why, how did Herman Melville know all this stuff? Mm-hmm. Why, you know, where does it come from? Because you, he's not a mathematician. And, and this is why, you know, nowadays, if we, we're sort of taught to believe, or somehow we come to believe quite often that, 
yeah, you're either a math, mathematics person or, or you're not. And right. if you're not, then you don't know any, you don't care. But this is absolutely not the case for one of our greatest writers, Herman Melville. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, yeah, maybe we, we all, <laughs> yeah, where did that come from? And, and, you know, it was just lovely to, to find out a little bit more about what, what he knew and how he knew it and, and where it all came from. So, yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, that's great. I I have confessed to you already, but I'll confess to our listeners that I have not read Moby Dick, but <laughs> it is on my list. It's one that I hope to get to this year. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's it's a, a little daunting. You better get cracking. Yeah. I mean, you know. I know. Yeah, I've only got six months left. So. Yeah. I, I, no, but it's... I read it at bed, you know, at bedtime. That's when I tend to read. And so I read it, you know, maybe 10, 12 years ago. And it took me quite a while. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's pretty I, dense, yeah. too, you know. Yeah. It is. It is. And I, I mean, I didn't read it till I was older than mm-hmm. I'd like to think. Um, because, it, you know, you hear this is the great American novel and you mm-hmm. sh- everyone should have read this book. And then you feel bad that you haven't read it. And right. then you feel annoyed that you feel bad that you haven't read it. So there's all these yeah. little barriers that you put up for yourself. And, you know, I, I was so glad that I did eventually read it because mm-hmm. i loved it it's it's so rich and there is you know many 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 layers of interpretation and depth in the writing but it is a great book um so mm-hmm. yeah i i hope you will enjoy it when you read it yeah but you know there, there are books that we all <laughs> that, that, that i haven't yet read i don't know if i will ever read maybe one day finnegan's wake yeah. <laughs> that's on my list yeah. i do i do mention it in in the book because james joyce i I talk about ulysses a little bit and dubliners in in the book um but finnegan's wake for me i i tried and i didn't quite didn't quite get there all i can say in the middle of finnegan's wake there is a picture which could have come straight out of you know euclid's elements Mm. it's it's got you know equilateral triangles two circles intersecting um but yeah uh, that that for me maybe one day Maybe I'll have a, lot, a sabbatical one day and that will be what I do in that sabbatical. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there just, there is so much, there's so many good books published now there yeah. mm-hmm. that it's like, you can't, you can't read them because you got to yeah. read last year's good books, but you can't yeah. read, I mean, it's just, right. you, yeah, yeah, anything you yeah. read is great. And exactly. you're never going to get to all of it, so... Let's just... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We can Enjoy have am- what you read. Amnesty right. of, of all our unread books. It's fine. <laughs> yes. We mm-hmm. forgive ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much yeah, for, for joining yeah. us. Yeah. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah. You know, we do like to give our guests a chance to plug things, but we've already talked about oh, your yeah. book quite yeah. a bit. Is there anything else that you'd like to, to mention about... Um, you know what you're working on or, or other things that you've published that you'd like us to share oh no, i think i'm all right so <laughs> but coming up i mean not for us listeners but i've got uh, an event coming up in a couple of weeks it's going to be really fun because we're going to watch a classic b movie mm. from the 1950s which is this film about uh, giant ants terrorizing the new mexico desert it's yeah. called them with an exclamation yeah, point. yeah i've seen the posters <laughs> yeah right yeah yeah, yeah which yeah. is super fun but that's about um yeah the, these something has happened who knows but they're, they're giant ants mm-hmm. uh, yeah. they have a lot of fun with it but we're gonna have a, so we're gonna watch the film at the barbican center in london and then we're gonna talk about yeah what does mathematics tell us about what life is like if they were giant could giant, giant ants yeah. exist mm. could giant spiders okay. exist or yeah. giants or tiny people like lilliputians and so that that's a kind of fun thing that's coming up but yeah uh 
you, you, you already if you if you look at my book, you will already have a reading list that's like sure a hundred yeah. new books that are going to be fun to <laughs> fun right. to read and right. and explore. So yeah, there's plenty to go on. <laughs> okay, great, great. Well, thanks so much, Sarah. This has really been fun. Yeah. Thank you yeah. for having me. Yeah, I've loved it. Take care. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to My Favorite Theorem, hosted by Kevin Knudsen and Evelyn Lee. The music you're hearing is a piece called Fractalia, a percussion quartet performed by four high school students from Gainesville, Florida. They are Blake Crawford, Gus Knudsen, Del Mitchell, and Bao Chan Wen. You can find more information about the mathematicians and theorems featured in this podcast, along with other delightful mathematical treats, at Kevin's website, kpknudsen.com, and Evelyn's blog, Roots of Unity, on the Scientific American Blog Network. We love to hear from our listeners, so please drop us a line at myfavoritetheorem at gmail.com, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Kevin's handle on Twitter is at nivicnazdunk, that's Kevin spelled backwards, followed by Knudsen spelled backwards, and Evelyn's is at Evelyn J. Lamb. The show itself also has a Twitter feed. The handle is M-Y-F-A-V-E-T-H-M, that's at myfavoritetheorem. Join us next time to learn another fascinating piece of mathematics.